Welcome to the Fitness to Dive podcast. I am Dr. David Charish. I am a dive medicine physician, board certified in emergency medicine and undersea and hyperbaric medicine. A question every diver should ask themselves prior to any dive is, am I fit to dive? As a hyperbaric physician and diving consultant, I work with the diving community to evaluate and treat diving-related issues. As an educator, I offer lectures, workshops, seminars, and symposium on all aspects of dive safety, dive technology, and dive medicine. A question every diver should ask themselves prior to any dive is, am I fit to dive? Understanding what constitutes fitness to dive is key to our ability to process this information and allow for effective decision making. In a real world example, as a diver with a dive trip scheduled and now with a new medical diagnosis and recently prescribed medication, what information do you need to both absorb this information about your medical condition and have the cognitive ability to make an informed decision? We will have conversations with leaders in the fields of dive safety, dive technology, dive medicine, and most importantly, divers. These podcasts will explore the many aspects of fitness to dive. We can better understand our fitness to dive as we address these six areas. Medical fitness, psychological fitness, nutrition, physical fitness, knowledge, and physical skill. So whether you are a recreational diver, technical diver, public safety diver, scientific diver, commercial diver, military diver, or free diver, understanding your fitness to dive will make your diving safer and more enjoyable. Please join me on this important conversation on fitness to dive. This is Dr. David Charish, dive medicine physician of Dive Medicine and Hyperbaric Consultants. Dr. Johnson Arbor is board certified in emergency medicine, medical toxicology, and undersea and hyperbaric medicine. Currently, she serves as the medical director of hyperbaric medicine at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital in Washington, D.C., and is co medical director of the National Capital Poison Control Center. Dr. Johnson Arbor maintains medical toxicology, undersea diving medicine, and hyperbaric medicine clinics at the MedStar Georgetown University Hospital and regularly teaches medical toxicology, dive medicine, and hyperbaric medicine topics to third and fourth year medical students, residents, and pharmacology students. She is an associate faculty member of the MedStar Institute for Quality and Safety and has a special interest in the use of hyperbaric medicine, bloodless medicine. She is active in professional medical societies and has served as secretary treasurer of the American College of Hyperbaric Medicine since 2017. Dr. Johnson Arbor is an instructor for introductory hyperbaric medicine courses, has authored multiple published medical articles on toxicology and hyperbaric medicine-related topics, and enjoys speaking on these subjects as well. Her current research interests include heavy metal poisoning, the impact of hyperbaric oxygen administration on eustachian tube dysfunction, and the use of hyperbaric oxygen therapy in the bloodless medicine population. Great to have you here, Dr. Johnson Arbor. Thanks for having me today. This is great. So the first question is, what is decompression sickness? So decompression sickness is a constellation of signs and symptoms that occur as a consequence of our bodies experiencing decreases in ambient pressure around us. 
Okay, and so what are the current theories of the cause? I know it's these decreasing pressure, but what really is decompression sickness? So this has to take us back to high school physics. So basically, first of all, we'll talk about what we're doing right now. So right now, you and I are sitting in an office in Washington, D.C., and we're just going to assume that we're at sea level. And right now, we're in a room breathing air. And if you think back to high school... Air is composed of a bunch of different things, but it's mostly nitrogen. So air is about 79% nitrogen, about 21% oxygen, and then there's little bits of other things like CO2 and other gases in there. So when you're scuba diving, we'll just take scuba diving as an example because most of us are aware of decompression sickness as something that affects scuba divers. So most scuba divers breathe just regular air, so not pure oxygen, um, not anything special, just air under pressure. And when you when you go under pressure, when you when your body is is exposed to increased pressures, then your body actually takes in the nitrogen and dissolves it in your body's tissues. And this again is back to high school physics, something called Henry's law. Basically, as the pressure increases, the solubility of gases increase as well. So when you are, are put under increased pressure, you have increased solubility of gases like nitrogen into your body. And the nitrogen hangs out in your tissues, um, kind of just sits there while you're under pressure. And then when you depressurize, when you come up to the surface where the pressure decreases, the nitrogen has to actually come out of those tissues. And if you decompress too quickly or have certain risk factors that just make you more likely to experience these bubbles, these nitrogen bubbles coming out of your circulation too quickly, that will cause decompression sickness. So basically decompression sickness is a condition where nitrogen comes out of your tissues and lodges in different places in your body that it shouldn't normally be. So is it just the nitrogen bubbles themselves or is there an inflammation going on? So your body perceives the nitrogen bubbles as something foreign. And so when nitrogen bubbles just lodge in your tissues, wherever they happen to be, your body treats that as a um, inflammatory state and it sends lots of little inflammatory cells to the area of, of the nitrogen and that causes inflammation and pain and all of the symptoms that we typically consider to go along with decompression sickness. Excellent. And so um, how common is decompression sickness in scuba divers? So fortunately, it's not that common, but unfortunately, it's frequently misdiagnosed. Um, you know, unfortunately, decompression sickness is not something that is taught in a lot of rec recreational diver introductory classes. You know, the diving instructors want you to learn about diving as something that's fun and recreational. They don't really want to harp on all the bad things that can happen if you dive. And so I've encountered many divers who are completely unfamiliar with what decompression is, how it occurs, and how to reduce its incidence. So the most important thing, even though it is rare, it is very important to know what it is and know what its signs and symptoms are so that if it ever happens to you, you can be aware of it and seek medical attention right away. Excellent. So what are the common or not so common signs of decompression sickness? Okay, so a lot of divers will uh, complain of pain, for example. So nitrogen bubbles can lodge anywhere. They frequently lodge in muscles or bones, and that can cause pain. Um, you know, there's this characteristic rash that we think of with decompression sickness. That's not something that we see frequently, but it sort of looks like mottled skin, like sometimes you see it on newborn babies. Um, it's called cutis marmorata, but it's not something that we frequently see. Um, we see a lot of pain. We see a lot of just muscle aches and fatigue and not feeling right. 
Um, but, you know, again, these nitrogen bubbles can hang out anywhere abnormally. So they can lodge in the, a patient's spinal cord and cause neurologic symptoms like numbness or tingling or weakness or even, in some cases, paralysis. Um, the nitrogen can go up to your brain and cause what we, ca what we call a cerebral air embolus, which is more or less a stroke that occurs because of a bubble, a foreign body lodging in your brain. Um, one of the weirdest cases of decompression sickness that I have seen in my career um, was someone that I saw pretty early on after I started treating divers. Um, and this was a diver that she was somewhere in the Caribbean. And after she surfaced, she noticed that one of her breasts was really heavy and swollen. Um, and I remember her telling me that she was walking to the airport, um, you know, to take her flight back to the US and she had to hold her breast and her hand to support it because it was so big and swollen. And basically what she had was decompression sickness, sickness affecting her lymphatic tissue and the nitrogen had basically gone into her lymphatics by her breast and caused it to swell up. So again, you know, decompression sickness can present in all of these weird ways and it's it's never clear cut in a lot of cases and it can be it can be very difficult to diagnose because of that. Great. So how do we classify decompression decompression sickness? Is there a classification system? So there is. So there's essentially two types of decompression sickness that we recognize. Some people recognize a third type as well, but for the most part, there's two types. And it's actually pretty simple to classify it. Type 1 decompression sickness and type 2 decompression sickness are the two different types. And type 1 is really our milder symptoms. So patients who just have pain, um, maybe muscle aches, but nothing more than that. And type 2 is everything else. So your neurologic symptoms, your weakness, your numbness, your tingling, um, your headaches, your fatigue, like anything that does not involve pain generally is type 2. Now, the problem is that some divers might develop decompression sickness and they might notice that they have pain in their left arm, which is consistent with type 1 decompression sickness. But they might also ignore the fact or not recognize the fact that they also are fatigued, have a headache, or have numbness down their right leg. So just because you have multiple symptoms, we don't want divers to ignore them. So even though a diver might have symptoms consistent with a more milder form like type 1, we always want to be on the lookout for the other symptoms that could be, could be suggestive of a more severe type of decompression sickness because that will change our treatment plan for the diver. Sure. So uh, it's interesting that we have mild and severe symptoms, if you will. Um, so if a diver uh, feels they have decompression sickness immediately after diving, what should they do? So they should seek medical attention right away. Um, you know, in, in a lot of cases, prompt treatment can result in a more rapid resolution of symptoms. Once your symptoms are present for, you know, several days, for example, we're not going to offer you hyperbaric treatments most likely. And if, you're, if your symptoms remain untreated, they can actually be permanent. So we want our divers to seek medical attention right away. If you are a DAN member, we suggest that you call DAN, Divers Alert Network, because they are able to give you recommendations of where you should go to get treated. Not every hospital has the capability to treat patients with severe decompression sickness. Um, and so DAN's a great resource because they can help triage you to the appropriate location where you can get the correct treatment. And I think that, you know, the clear recommendations from Divers Alert Network is actually they would prefer you to call 911 first because not everything is decompression sickness. So you could be having some other medical emergency like a stroke or a heart attack that may give you symptoms that you might suspect are decompression sickness but are not. 
and then from that emergency department, they can appropriately triage you to a place that can treat you properly. That's that's very true. Not every symptom that happens after diving is decompression sickness. I can actually give you an example of this. So I actually had somebody call me just earlier this week, um, and this this person went diving, and after they finished diving, they had a headache and chest pain and fatigue and muscle aches and pretty much every symptom that could be potentially suggestive of decompression sickness. So I talked to the person and got some more information about their diving and they were doing a pool dive in six feet of water for like half an hour. Um, and so, you know, I was able to come to the conclusion that these symptoms were probably not from diving. They were probably maybe from muscle aches, from using muscles that they hadn't used before, um, or maybe, you know, being nervous about everything and being like just overly worried. But um, I, I told the diver that the symptoms were most likely not from decompression sickness. But then just like you said, Dr. Cherish, the other side is possible too. So you might have really, really, really severe symptoms that could be from a stroke, or a heart attack or something else that are not decompression sickness, but that also do require prompt, timely, and um, expert medical attention right away. So it's very, very important for any diver who is concerned about decompression sickness to number one, recognize that they might have an emergency medical condition, and number two, get attention in a medical facility right away. Excellent. So what are the treatment op options, assuming that you have uh, agreed uh, clinically as a physician that, yes, this is decompression sickness? Okay. So sometimes our divers want to treat this themselves by going back in the water, and we generally don't recommend that for recreational divers. And the reason for that is we don't really, you don't really know what you're doing, and I don't say that to be, you know, condescending to divers, but we, um, we recommend recompression only for very, very certain circumstances and under very, very strict protocols with observation. So, for example, if you have weakness in your leg after diving and you tell yourself, oh, I must have type 2 decompression sickness. I am going to go back underwater and, and recompress myself. Um, you might not be able to make it out of the water because of your weakness. You, your symptoms may progress. You may um, you know, not be able to swim underwater. So it can actually be more dangerous to do in-water recompression on your own. So we want you to go to the hospital. And at the hospital, we'll normally give patients oxygen right away. The quickest way to get oxygen is just through a face mask. Um, and so we'll generally administer that to our patients. So we'll just have you put up a mask to your face and breathe in 100% pure oxygen. Um, and then based on our examination and what we, what we think you have in terms of the severity of your illness, we may or may not recommend you to have hyperbaric oxygen treatments. Excellent. So the question really is then if you are going to treat someone in the hyperbaric chamber, what or how does hyperbaric oxygen work? So hyperbarics does a, a couple of things. First of all, it does decrease those nitrogen bubbles. So basically when, you, um, when you're underwater and you have bubbles of nitrogen form in your tissues, if they are present still as you come up out of the water, they will actually get larger as you come out of the water. Um, and this, again, is back to high school physics. This is what we call Boyle's Law. Anything that's air-filled will change in size with the pressure changes. So um, hyperbarics actually works by pressurizing the individual down to increased level of pressure, usually between, you know, 30 to 60 feet underwater equivalent. Um, and that will shrink the nitrogen bubbles, but it does so much 
more than that. So hyperbarics also is known to decrease inflammation. Um, if and again, this is why you want people to be treated right away because if uh, when those when those when your body recognizes the nitrogen bubbles as being inflammatory and foreign invaders into our bodies, and our body sends inflammatory cells out there to kind of guard the body and kind of ward off that inflammation, hyperbarics can actually reduce that inflammation and reduce all of the inflammatory effects that go with it. So it does it does a couple things. Great. And so the other question is: Is hyperbaric always effective? So I think in medicine, we know that there's no guarantees for anything, unfortunately, and I can never guarantee that hyperbarics is going to be 100% effective. What we can do in some cases is if we are treating a patient for decompression sickness, we can actually extend the treatment um, to see if we can make the treatment more effective, but in some cases, the treatment may not be effective. Again, it's going to be most effective when hyperbarics is administered soon after the decompression sickness injuries occur. Her. Um, if a diver comes in, I think I mentioned before, if a diver comes in a couple, you know, several days after an injury and still has symptoms of decompression sickness, it's much less likely that hyperbarics is going to be beneficial at that time. So is this a single treatment or would you consider doing multiple treatments? So it really depends on the diver. Um, most of the time, I do not give a, a single treatment. Um, you know, even if a diver surfaces after a treatment and says that they feel 100% better, I'll still bring them back the next day for another treatment just to give them that extra bu buffer of safety. Now, sometimes divers take multiple treatments. I've treated uh, patients with decompression sickness, I want to say maybe like two or three days in a row, um, just to make sure that all their symptoms go away. And when I say that, I mean I want all of their symptoms to go away. If the weakness in the leg gets better, but they still have numbness in their right pinky finger, I want to get that to go away too. So we, will, we, we base our treatment schedules and our treatment timings on the individual diver. There's no you know, one and all um, treatment for decompression sickness. It's very individual based. Great, and when you're getting treated as a patient, how long are you sitting in the chamber for for a single treatment? So the typical treatment for decompression sickness is long. It's four hours and 45 minutes at a minimum. Now, if somebody comes in and they just have very, very mild symptoms, like they have some pain and they maybe had a headache, but the headache went away and they have a completely normal exam, I might consider putting them in just for, you know, a regular two-hour hyperbaric treatment like my normal patients have. But for most divers with decompression sickness, especially for those with severe decompression sickness, um, they're going to go in for four hours and 45 minutes. So be ready, you know, because it's, it's a long time. Um, you know, I used to treat um, divers in a large hyperbaric treatment when I was back in Connecticut. We would order food in, we would order pizza and put it through the lock for the divers to eat. Um, you know, we have to be aware that, that divers are going to have to use the restroom during that treatment and we have to be ready for that. Um, you got to have enough water in the chamber and you have to have stuff to do. So watching movies is something that our divers are going to get very used to in our hyperbaric chambers because, again, you're in there for a long time. So you mentioned a large or multi-place chamber and you currently treat patients in a monoplace chamber. Is there a significant difference in treatment as a diver? Should I prefer or demand to go to a multi-place center for my treatment? Okay, so that's a really difficult que question. The um, the ideal answer is yes, if you have type 2 decompression sickness, 
it's probably best for you to be treated in a multi-place chamber just because in a multi-place hyperbaric chamber, you're in the chamber with somebody else, with a technician or a physician or a nurse who's monitoring you and who can perform an examination on you while the chamber is at depth um, and, and get more detailed information about how your symptoms are changing as a result of the hyperbaric treatment. So multi-place chambers are great. With that being said, um, you need to understand that there are very, very few multi-place chambers in the U.S. right now. And also internationally, I don't know if you have an international audience here, but there are um, fewer multi-place chambers than, than mono-place chambers um, overall. The reason for that is multifactorial. Multi-place chambers are big. They take up a lot of room. Um, they have to have a built-in fire suppression system underneath the chamber as well. So you see a chamber underneath the chamber on the floor below, there's going to be a huge tank filled with water to uh, suppress any potential fire that can occur. You also need a lot of staff to run a multi-place chamber, not just the doctor, but you also need a technician to run the chamber. You need somebody inside the chamber with a patient as well. So they can be very, very expensive for hospitals. And if hospitals are not using the chamber to treat divers um, you know, every day of the year, it can be sort of a financial disincentive to have a multi-place chamber. Um, for an example, last year in the U.S., there were 78 hyperbaric facilities that could treat emergencies as of June of 2020. And a lot of those were multi-place chambers. Flash forward to 12 months later, June of 2021, that number had gone down to 68. So we had a significant decrease in the number of emergency hyperbaric chambers that were available in the U.S. And, you know, some of the chambers got shut down because of COVID. Some of the chambers got shut down because the hospitals decided they weren't financially viable anymore. But um, it, it can be very difficult to find a multi-place chamber. So if you're only option is a monoplace chamber, that is fine too. I mean, monoplace chambers can pressurize you down to the same treatment depth that multiplace chambers can. Um, the only, the main difference is you're going to be in the monoplace chamber by yourself. There's not going to be some, someone in there who can lay hands on you and actually physically examine you. Although that person can sit or stand right outside of the chamber and ask you questions and try to get more information that way. Um, that, you know, that's, that's a completely viable option as well. If it's your only option, you can certainly get treated for decompression sickness in a monoplace chamber. And I'm assuming that the treatment itself is identical in depth and duration and time. Right. So, I mean, monoplace chambers can go to the 60-foot treatment depth just like multiplace chambers can. And that would be the treatment depth for our um, patients with decompression sickness. We treat them down to 2.8 atmospheres, so just around 60 feet. Um, so yeah, monoplace chambers can get there. They, you know, it's going to be a little tight in there and you're going to be in there for four hours and 45 minutes, but it's certainly a viable option. Excellent. So then the next question is, are there any side effects of possible complications as a result of the hyperbaric oxygen therapy? So there are, but for divers, it's generally pretty minimal. So um, when you are in a hyperbaric chamber, just like when you're diving, you have to equalize your ears. Um, our scuba divers generally never have a problem with that because scuba divers know how to equalize. Um, hyperbarics is similar to scuba diving in terms of the pressurization, but it's very different because in hyperbarics, you're breathing 100% oxygen, whereas in scuba diving, most divers are breathing air. So the toxicities that can occur from breathing nitrogen, such as nitrogen narcosis or decompression sickness, are not going to happen in a hyperbaric chamber. But in the hyperbaric chamber, you can get toxicities from breathing oxygen. So oxygen can cause seizures. So we'll, we'll typically give our patients um, a little break from the oxygen every half hour. We'll just have them breathe air to reduce the risk of oxygen toxicity. 
Also, if you breathe oxygen for more than a couple of hours at a time, you are at risk for pulmonary toxicity from the oxygen. And that is generally just, you know, milder symptoms like like a little dry cough, um, maybe a little trouble breathing. And that will generally go away once the hyperbaric treatment is stopped because you're no longer getting the oxygen. Um, but we are careful about the pulmonary toxic effects in our divers because, again, you're under pressure for four hours and 45 minutes. Excellent. And so what are some of the challenges that you face when you have identified a patient and you're treating them in the chamber? Challenges as a physician responsible for the care of that patient. Okay. So my biggest issues with uh, treating decompression sickness patients is that I have to find time to put them in. So again, it's a four-hour, 45-minute treatment. If I already have patients scheduled who are coming in for problem wounds or whatever else, it can be hard to fit decompression sickness patients in. Um, fortunately, I've just been lucky and I have never had to turn away a diver because I didn't have room for them, but that is a potential issue. Um, we are in the U.S. We are also faced with the constraints of insurance prior authorizations that are often required. Now, in an emergency like decompression sickness, we will generally be able to get an authorization from a diver's insurance company, but that may take some time. So it may take me an hour or two to touch base with the insurance company and make them aware that this is an emergency. Most insurance companies are getting requests for hyperbaric oxygen therapy for patients with wounds or people who have radiation injuries, not for scuba divers. And so I found that when I have a scuba diver and I need an insurance authorization done urgently, I have to call the insurance company and tell them, this is a diving emergency. If this patient does not get treated ASAP, they could have permanent injuries. And we really have to convince and just make the insurance company aware of the emergent nature of the uh, need of hyperbaric treatment for decompression sickness. So speaking of insurance, then it would seem that divers should probably carry, in addition to their own personal medical insurance, even if they have that insurance, some form of diving-specific insurance. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. So I have had divers who needed to be evacuated, for example, from their diving location to get medical treatment. Um, and your regular medical insurance may not cover that, but your diving insurance will. The other thing is, if you're diving outside of the U.S., your, your regular medical insurance will probably not cover you for something that happens in Mexico or the Caribbean or, or Southeast Asia. Um, you know, Medicare or whatever your insurance is, is not going to cover you for incidents that happen out there. So it's very, very smart to have your own diving insurance. Also, if for whatever reason your, your private insurance has a huge out-of-pocket expense, um, for hyperbarics, which is, you know, a lot of us have high deductible plans and, you know, you, you pay every month for insurance, which is great, but then you don't realize that when, until you get the bill that you are responsible for paying the first five to $10,000 of your insurance bill. Um, in many cases, your diver supplemental insurance might kick in and might pay for, for part or all of that. Excellent. And so then the other question is that you have this diver that's diagnosed with decompression sickness they're treated in the hyperbaric chamber, and they have resolved the symptoms either completely or partially. There's no further indication to continue hyperbaric treatment. And now that diver wants to return to diving, how do we advise divers after being treated with decompression sickness in a hyperbaric chamber? 
when they should return to diving. So all of my divers want to get back to diving ASAP. And this can be a really difficult discussion because if you just took a decompression sickness hit, that is a stress to your body and your body really needs to recover from that. So you need to take some time off. And I know nobody wants to hear that, but that's the safest thing for your body. Just like if you had a heart attack, for example, you wouldn't have a heart attack and then get treated and then go run a marathon, you know, a week later, you would take time off and do cardiac rehab and just let your body recover. And it's the same thing with decompression sickness. So in general, if somebody just has very, very mild decompression sickness, like just joint pain, muscle pain, that's it, nothing else. And if I see them and perform an exam and confirm that they don't have any other symptoms or signs suggestive decompression sickness, once that patient is treated, they can generally go back to diving about seven days out, but I usually encourage longer. But that's the minority. The majority of the patients that we see who have decompression sickness have more severe symptoms. And in those cases, we want you to stay out of the water for about six weeks at a minimum. Um, and you need to have all of your symptoms be resolved. So if you still have a little bit of tingling in your left foot, um, I'm not going to clear you at six weeks unless that tingling is completely resolved. So when I see my divers, I put them in the hyperbaric chamber, we treat them for the acute issue, and then I tell them, come back in four to six weeks. And at that point, we could discuss return to diving. I do not discuss return to diving with the diver at the time of the hyperbaric treatment because, again, the body just needs some time to recover. Excellent. And it seems to me that it would make sense that as a diver, if I was injured and recovered from my decompression sickness and treated in a hyperbaric chamber, that I'd want to seek counsel from a physician who's knowledgeable in diving medicine. You would certainly do. And there's also some things that can maybe make individuals more susceptible to having decompression sickness. And so once the hyperbaric treatment is done for the decompression sickness, my job, my next job is to figure out if there's anything that put that patient at risk for getting decompression sickness, whether it is their body habitus or were they dehydrated or do they have underlying heart disease or is there anything else that made them at risk? And so aside from bringing the patients back to see me in four to six weeks, I'll frequently also schedule them for some other testing during that time as well. Um, you know, even if it's something as simple as a chest x-ray or a test to make sure that they have adequate cardiac reserves for diving. Um, I frequently do recommend some other testing for my divers. I want my divers to be as healthy as possible, both in and out of the water. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for uh, participating in our conversation today. Have a great day. Thanks. Thanks for having me again. This has been great. And um, to all the divers out there, enjoy the sport, but just be aware that um, decompression sickness can occur. And now you know how to treat it. And now you know what the symptoms are. So we've talked about mild and severe symptoms, so type 1 and type 2 decompression sickness. What is type 3 decompression sickness? So type 3 decompression sickness is a very severe form of decompression sickness called air embolus. Um, an air embolus occurs when those bubbles of nitrogen pass through your blood into your heart and up into your brain. And that can cause stroke-like symptoms. Um, it can cause really severe neurologic symptoms, anything from passing out to being in a coma to being completely unresponsive. Um, and it's definitely something that needs to be treated right away. It can be very life-threatening if not treated right away. And how do we distinguish an uh, arterial gas embolism compared to decompression sickness? So again, with decompression sickness, um, you know, there's type one, which is just pain, type two, which is more neurologic symptoms like numbness, tingling, you know, fatigue, stuff like that. 
with a, with a type three or an, a cerebral air embolus, the air is up in your brain and it's going to act like a stroke. So you're going to frequently um, also have some pulmonary barotrauma that goes along with it. So the diver might surface and then immediately have trouble breathe, breathing and pass out. Um, and that again occurs when the air bubble goes from the blood into the heart up to the brain. And it can occur because of something in your heart called a PFO, which some divers might be aware of. Um, a PFO is, is an abbreviation for the term patent foramen or valley. And it's a little hole in your heart that's present in about a third of the population. And it can be small or it can be large. And it can grow over time. So you can have a small one when you're young and it can grow over um, time as you get older to be a large one. And if it's large, um, it, it's, it's more easy for the nitrogen bubbles to pass through it and go up to your brain. Um, to diagnose a PFO, you have to have a specialized cardiac ultrasound performed, um, and that can be difficult to schedule. I actually just scheduled one yesterday for somebody um, at my hospital, but that's how we diagnose the PFO. And the PFO, if it's there, it does put you at risk for having decompression sickness and for having air embolus in the future. So is it important to be able to differentiate between decompression sickness and an arterial gas embolism, at least on the pre-hospital side and the boat? Uh, on the dive site versus in the emergency department or for you as a hyperbaric physician in, in the uh, hyperbaric uh, chamber area? So I think the most important thing is to recognize that any severe neurologic symptom or really any symptom at all that occurs within a short period of time after diving um, needs to be concerning for decompression sickness. The treatment's going to be the same. Whether you have an air embolus or a type 2 decompression sickness, the treatment is still going to be recompression in a hyperbaric chamber as soon as possible. I can't say that enough. Um, I, I do want you to know that in the hospital setting, air embolus is a very, very rarely diagnosed event, and a lot of medical professionals are unaware of it. We actually had an air embolism case recently um, that I was only peripherally involved in, that um, there was a, a delay in diagnosis for multiple reasons, but this is a very common thing. It can happen as a consequence of scuba diving. Um, you can get an air embolus uh, after medical procedures, even after surgery, um, and it can be it can be hard to diagnose because it mimics a stroke, and so people think, oh, somebody is is not waking up or is in a coma or passed out. Maybe they're having a stroke, and they sort of go down that route and they don't consider air embolus. Um, so I would definitely encourage every diver to be aware that air embolus is a potential diagnosis for divers, and please don't be afraid to mention it if you've been diving and or your friend has been diving and has passed out or has a has, looks like they're having a stroke, be sure to mention the possibility of air embolus to the ER doctor or to the uh, EMTs that, that come to take you to the hospital because, again, it's something that we don't see on a daily basis, and it's something that we, we don't all have adequate recognition of. So once identified as an air embolism, then what would you be your treatment options? So the treatment for air embolus is immediate recompression as soon as possible. Um, and that should occur in the hyperbaric chamber as soon as possible, again, with the U.S. Navy Treatment Table 6, which is the 4-hour, 45-minute hyperbaric treatment. So the treatment table for decompression sickness type 2 and for air embolism is identical? That's correct. They are the same. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much once again. Have a great day. Thank you. Stay tuned for a future podcast as we continue the conversation and take an in-depth look at medical fitness to dive, how medical fitness standards are developed, diving in the era of COVID-19, and understanding our underlying medical condition. We will introduce special guests in the fields of dive medicine, dive technology, and dive safety 
as we continue this conversation. This is Dr. David Charish from Dive Medicine and Hyperbaric Consultants, signing off for now.